Welcome to Healthcare Hot Button Issues. I'm Harry Liu. In today's episode, we will talk about mass public shootings to figure out what we can do to mitigate this ongoing crisis. A lot has been said about mass public shootings of the two recent horrific events. There was a shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. The gunman killed 19 students and two teachers. In Buffalo, New York, the perpetrator took down 10 individuals at a grocery store. Although mass public shootings account for only two tenths of a percent of all firearm deaths, they lead to severe consequences on our mental health, anxiety, and perceptions of safety. The current debate mostly focuses on gun control measures, such as those articles published in New York Times, National Public Radio, and more importantly, President Biden delivered a speech last week. He advocates for banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, as he has been doing this for many years. So the first question we need to ask is, do gun control measures prevent mass public shootings? Unfortunately, the short answer is, we don't know. The researchers at Rand Corporation, a nonpartisan think tank, have sifted through literally thousands of academic publications to examine 18 different policies to look at their effects on different outcomes. Full disclosure, I worked at the Rand Corporation for many years. Among these 18 policies, only 10 have studies on mass public shooting that met the academic criteria set by the researchers. These policies include minimum age requirement, background checks, licensing requirements, waiting periods, firearm sales registration, bans on assault weapons, stand your ground laws, child access prevention laws, and concealed carry laws. The results, none of these 10 gun control policies. None has been demonstrated conclusively that they reduce mass shootings, including banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines proposed by President Biden. This, however, does not mean that these 10 gun policies do not prevent mass public shootings. It is just that convincing evidence has not been generated yet. There are a couple of reasons for one There's a lack of funding for gun policy research. As a matter of fact, zero federal dollars have been allocated for such research for more than 20 years because of, well, politics. Second, the number of max public shootings is small and it varies considerably over years. Statistical methods do not work because the assumptions don't hold when the number of events is too small. So because of a lack of credible evidence in policymaking, we are practically shooting in the dark. But other than gun control laws, did we miss important measures that we can leverage? This is the second question we want to discuss. Let's do a thought experiment, if you will. In infection control, we can do three different things to break the chain of infection. First, we can contain the source of infection. For example, we can isolate infected individuals or control the reservoirs of an infectious agent. And second, we can interrupt the mode of transmission. For example, like what we did during the pandemic, washing hands or wearing a face mask. And then we can protect the susceptible host. For example, we can get vaccinated against a disease. If we use this infection control process as an analogy, we can consider weapons as infectious agents. 
in an infected individual, metaphorically speaking, of course, can transport these agents or firearms to infect susceptible individuals, that is, to injure people in schools or at gatherings. Using this analogy, gun control measures cover the first two dimensions of infection control, containing their source of infection, for example, via banning assault weapons, and second, interrupting the mode of transmission through background checks, minimum age requirements, child access prevention laws, and concealed carry laws, and so forth. At this point, you've probably noticed that we are missing one of the most important aspects of preventing mass public shootings in our debate. That is protecting individuals in schools or at gatherings directly, or protecting the susceptible hosts, so to speak. Take mass school shootings as an example. Enhancing school security would make common sense. In fact, Texas established a law in 2019 to do exactly just that. It allows school employees to bring guns to work and the state allocates funds to school districts to improve security. You might be wondering why didn't that law prevent the school shooting in Uvalde in Texas? We now learn that the elementary school even failed to lock the door at the time the gunman arrived. Though the investigation is still ongoing and we need to wait for more information on that. In my opinion, it's too early to tell the law's effect at this time because it has not been well enforced, according to the Texas Tribune. Actually, a 2020 state audit report shows that only about 20% of school districts had put in place an active shooter policy required by the state, and only 6% of districts have their employees carry a gun to work. Also, the state didn't allocate enough funds to school districts. On average, schools have received about $10 per student. This is far from enough. Prior research again shows conflicting results, largely due to the small number of events. For instance, in 2019, a researcher from the University of Toledo in Ohio reviewed the publications on school security measures, and he didn't find evidence that they reduced school firearm violence. Even worse, a study published by a researcher from Hamline University in Minnesota found that the presence of armed school officials was associated with more gunshot injuries. This seems to be counterintuitive. My understanding is that things can go really wrong when you use too complex a methodology to analyze too small a sample. In other words, we are asking really too much from the data. In contrast, another 2019 study was conducted by the Crime Prevention Research Center. The author concluded that from 2000 to 2018, no firearm injuries occurred in schools allowing employees to bring guns to work, except for those incidents during off-work hours and suicides. But this study reflects mostly an observation. Now, here comes the last question, what should we do now? Are there low-hanging fruits we should aim for to mitigate ongoing crisis? This is a tough nut to crack, to say the least. The divide is so deep between those for and against gun control measures that even meaningful debate is very hard to come by. Again, thanks to the RAND researchers, they did another study trying to figure out the differences between individuals for and those against gun control measures. They found that the division between the two sides is mostly because the differences in their views about whether a gun control measure will work. Another finding is kind of surprising. It turns out that 
Both sides share very similar objectives. They want to reduce firearm suicides and homicides. In addition, both sides largely agree upon some gun control measures. For example, they agree that firearm access should be prohibited for individuals with mental health conditions below the minimum age limit subject to domestic violence restraining orders, and that states should enforce these prohibitions through prosecutions. In light of these findings, for the time being, we should pursue public policies to strengthen these measures that both sides agree upon, because not all states have enacted similar laws, so these measures will generate some benefits there. However, clinging to other measures without broad support like banning assault weapons, which in theory would reduce fatalities or delaying actions, is not in the best interest of Americans. The second action we can take is to strengthen the security of gathering places, including schools, shopping malls, churches, theaters, etc. And this doesn't require legislation at the federal level. And this is not something new, right? We have done this before for airports. After 9-11, we have enhanced airport security significantly to prevent terrorist attacks. Some researchers even argue that the U.S. airports are too safe, meaning that, that their costs outweigh the benefits. If we can make our airports safe from terrorist attacks, there is no reason we can beef up security measures for schools, shopping malls, and other places. Of course, we want to figure out like how much money we want to invest in these security measures. This requires careful cost-benefit analysis. Okay, here are the takeaways. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see mass public shootings. We can apply the infection control approach to broaden our perspective, and we can clearly see that protecting individuals at gathering places directly is often omitted in the current debate. While we are waiting for better data and more credible research, we don't have excuses to not set politics aside and implement these measures that make common sense. For the time being, this is our best bet to mitigate this ongoing crisis. Thanks for listening. Please let us know the topics of your interest. I will see you next time.